This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Vanessa Stoffenmacher from VreyandOro.com explained why removing products from your store can actually lead to more sales. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that made $200,000 in six months to pay for graduate school and then hired a CEO to run his business while going to grad school, but then ended up having to come back to save his business. In this episode, you'll learn how to get the most out of an MBA program and how to run a business while pursuing an MBA, how to run a hyper-targeted and successful YouTube advertising campaign, and the pros and cons of paying employees through equity versus commission. Today, I'm joined by Pierce Schiller from Tardisk.com. That's T-A-R-D-I-S-K.com. Tardisk is the first plug-and-play hybrid drive that doubles or even triples the onboard storage of your MacBook and was started in 2014 and based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Pierce. Felix, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about the the store and what is this product that you sell? Sure. So we are Tardisk. Uh, I think you summarized it pretty well. We call ourselves uh, the first plug-and-play hybrid drive. So what that means is um, we're, we're a chip company. We sell a little chip uh, that you stick into the side of a MacBook computer, which makes a otherwise non-upgradable machine upgradable. So for any MacBook user that was out there that probably purchased a a baseline level computer, came with a small hard drive. Apple makes it impossible or at least very difficult to upgrade those hard drives. Our chip solves that problem. Very cool. So what was your background? You know, because hardware companies like this, especially in technology space, are very hard to start. Did you have any kind of competitive advantage coming to this? Did you have a background in in this, uh, I guess, in in this industry? Oh, goodness, no. I am the... uh, classic example of a generalist. So um, I'm, I'm an undergraduate degree in bioengineering. Um, I went on to business. I've been involved mostly in biotech startups. And uh, this consumer electronics space is relatively new for me. It's a, it's a story on how I got here. Um, but no, no, no formal education in this whatsoever, other than uh, a thorough enjoyment for dabbling with all things electronic. Very cool. So this idea of you being a generalist, I think, resonates with a lot of other entrepreneurs that are out there that are listening. Uh, you know, not necessarily a specialist in anything, but kind of good at a bunch of different things, interested in a bunch of different things. How did you feel like that that kind of, uh, I guess, uh, model of yourself? Did it help hurt the company, kind of hurt your process of starting a company? Like, what, what, what was the process like for, for that? My, so um, if I look back, um, I, I probably have had one goal uh, since graduating from from college, which at this point is God, almost ten years ago, uh, and that was never to get a real job. Um, so, with that degree that I, I spoke about before, I, I w- found myself going more often into the biotech space. So, I was involved in a number of biotech uh, type startups. Um, when I, after being out of school for a couple of years, I, I decided that I wanted to go back and, and try and get an MBA. And uh, after I was accepted into an MBA program, I, I woke up one day and I said, "Oh no." If I have to go to school and take out all this debt to pay for this master's degree, uh, when I come out of school, I'm going to have to get a real job. And that's exactly what I don't want to do. 
Um, so I started a whole bunch of, of different ideas. I started juggling them around and, uh, I threw them at the wall and this is, this happened to be, um, well, this is the, the second version, but this is the evolution of the, the idea that, that hit. So the, uh, I was able to kind of start a company, uh, with the specific goal of paying for my higher education, uh, before that education started. And I was successful in doing that. And what Tardisk is, is, uh, it's really the evolution uh, of that, of that space. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. Did you ever end up going back to school? I did. I did. Um, so I graduated at this point about a year ago. So I did oh, get that cool. MBA after all. So you were running a company while getting your MBA. What was that like? Busy. <laughs> I bet. So coming into it, so I, I had a, a very strict goal for myself. Um, so I, I referred to it, my goal was $200,000 in six months. So that was the uh, estimated cost of, of, a, uh, of an MBA. And um, I, I went into it with that goal. I didn't quite achieve it, but by the end of my first semester, I did have um, school basically completely paid for. Um, and coming into school, my goal was not to continue to focus on, on the, the, these products that, that we were building, but instead to bring someone in to run the company for for me while I was a full-time student. And uh, that kind of worked. It worked at least for the first couple of months, the first three or four months or so. And then the company kind of went into a landslide. It, and actually all this happened when I was overseas uh, uh, on a winter uh, kind of study abroad type program in between semesters. And when I got back to the States, this was in January after my full semester, all of a sudden this, this company was doing terrible and I and I got kind of back involved. Um, not to the level I am now by any means, but certainly enough to set the company back on, on, a, on a path uh, and to continue to kind of maintain its success. Okay, so a couple interesting things there. Definitely want to talk about your experience of hiring someone to run a business while you go off and you know, do something else, in this case, pursue a higher education. Uh, but also the, the MBA, I think that's a, a path that a lot of other listeners, other entrepreneurs are consider pursuing, especially ones that don't have a you know, quote-unquote formal education in business. Uh, what, was that, what was the experience of getting an MBA? Like, How did you, any tips on how to make the most out of it for anyone that's thinking about or maybe going to be going into an MBA program anytime soon? I think it has to make sense for what stage it is in your career. And I think that the program that you're involving yourself in um, also needs to make sense for, for what it is you want out of it. So for, for me specifically, and, and I am not a representative case, I was interested in um, kind of getting access to, to a larger network than I had access to previously. Um, I was kind of fascinated w- with this idea of of being in a room with with you know these hyper successful people, and then at the end of the program, being able to call those people my friends and call them up when I need favors, that was all very important to me. I think that on the formal education side of it, um, God, you know, I, I went into this with with being weak in finance. It's it's still just as weak. Uh, I think a lot of the things that you, you know you can learn in that setting, you could pro- probably learn. Uh, in a in a similar setting, you know, online, reading it, researching it, um, just trying to catch yourself up to speed for what it is you need to know. Uh, although truly, the the exposure to these broad, you know, business plans and, and broad ideas did shape the way that that I've run the business up until now, and will, will shape uh, the way that I continue to run this business and the way that I'll start my next business. I'm sure. Mm, yeah, you know, I think it's kind of um, a common theme or trope that uh, super successful entrepreneurs 
uh, are sort of you know butt heads with the NBA uh, types, I guess, the people that go and get, go get the NBAs, NBA students. When you went to this NBA program, did you find that there were a lot of entrepreneurs in there, or did you, did you kind of see more of the career, I guess, uh, business people in these programs? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> That's probably why I was able to to to, to sneak in um, past the admissions boards. Um, the I was probably uh, so an, out of 900 person class, there's probably you know a handful, 20 people that had had true experience with kind of getting their hands dirty and building companies uh, prior to the MBA program. Um, coming out of it, though, I think that they did do a, a great job in in shaping the excitement around what it means to build your own business. Uh, and I think that a lot more people uh, exiting the program went on to. Uh, maybe not to necessarily start businesses, but at least to be involved in in very early stage teams, uh, doing some some very cool things. So um, I, I think that in in any um, group of people that you find yourself in, you'll you'll find extremes. I was probably just at at the far extreme of, you know, I, I was like a pit bull. I just locked it on this idea that I'm going to start another company, and and that's that's just what it's going to be. Um, I think. I think that there was a lot of people that wound up um, being, I, I don't I don't know if the word is convinced, but but uh, steering themselves in this direction of uh, starting a company after school. Mm-hmm. So I, I was among friends. I'll just say it that way. Very cool. So would you say the most valuable, I guess, aspect of this MBA program was the network and the friends and the connections you made coming out of it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Absolutely. Awesome. So I want to talk now about this uh, plan you had about finding someone to run the company while you're going to school. Was this always in the back of your mind or did it kind of come out of necessity as you started this program? So my goal was never to be the CEO of a consumer electronics company uh, ever. That's never the goal. Uh, My goal was to earn $200,000 in a very short period of time before school started. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I when I started the search to try and bring someone in to, to run this company for me, um, I you know the it's it's very easy to bring someone in to try and run a company for you if you don't value that company at very much, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the you know the the idea there is that I had already extracted the value that I wanted to extract out of this, um, and anything else would just be icing on the cake. So the way that I, I had you know, initially structured the search and um, the way that I, I would recommend any hiring happens is you know, through an extended network, you know, friends of friends, and kind of just getting that word out there. Uh, and then the way that, that I had uh, looked to structure this was through a, uh, the equivalent of like an earnout. So investing into an ownership stake over a period, I think it was of a year, um, and I think I, I gave up the majority of the company under that vesting uh, agreement, uh, with, with a cliff, of course. Mm, and okay. uh, you know, we're talking about this. It's interesting because it, it sounds very good from you know from the, the six thousand foot view. Uh, this failed, right? So mm-hmm. this worked great for three or four months, and it worked great at running the company, but it didn't work so good at growing the company, and didn't work. You know, when you're dealing in this fast-paced consumer electronic space, you need to make sure that you're constantly feeding things into this pipeline, uh, or you know, things are going to run dry. Um, and that's kind of what happened here. So the individual that I wound up bringing in to run the company did a spectacular job at running it, um, but didn't do such such a hot job at at growing it. Mm. And it's when I wound up stepping back in and shuffling things up a bit. 
I see. So you, you know, the person you brought in was great at maintaining, but in a fast-paced industry like tech and, and hardware, uh, you have to do more than that. You have to actually be actively growing the business and feeding that pipeline. So when you did hire someone to come in, what kind of guidance did you did you give? Like, how do you even begin to, I guess, transition the reins over to someone else? Yeah. So um, this was not such a short process. So. Um, yeah, I can, I can think back to this. It was a couple of years ago now. Uh, so I, I started the search in the in probably in the month of June. Um, found someone by July. Had them up here in Boston uh, by uh, probably late July, early August, and had the reins fully handed over uh, by late August, early September, just in time for me to kind of start start classes. Um, the way that I, I kind of structure this, I, I tried to document. I mean, documentation is the only way to win these things. It's the only way you can ever scale any business. I'm probably preaching to the choir there. Uh, but I started by just documenting what the processes were that I had in place. And this was everything from you know listing out our suppliers to you know, talking about where, where the money flows and, and what how to deal with different customer service issues. And I mean, this was a very complicated operation back then. This was relatively straightforward, especially when you compare it to, to what it is that, that this company is today. Um, but the, the the trick here was, yes, documentation and then um, sending that documentation over and reviewing it together. And then having a couple of weeks of transition where I was available almost full time to answer whatever questions needed to be answered uh, to get us to the next step or to get, get uh, the you know, the company moving to the next step. And I was going to ask, did you have to meet frequently? How did you, I guess, stay in contact during this period of time, especially when you were going to school and you had someone running the business? How, what was the communication like? So I think my commitment was five to 10 hours a week uh, that I would be available. Um, up until then, I was available whenever whenever I was needed. Uh, once I handed over the reins, um, I did, you know, I, honestly, I was just, too busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe that's why it only lasted, you know, for three, four months. Um, but I was too busy to kind of uh, get involved. And I think that, you know, then that, uh, like, what, what do they say? Necessity is the king of invention or the mother of invention or mm-hmm. something. Um, so the fact that I wasn't there to answer some of the questions that came up uh, kind of forced uh, new leadership to, to figure out their own answers. Um, and that, you know, that, that worked. Um, if I, were to do things differently again, I would probably set the same thing up the, the way that I set it up, but I, I would set it up with a structure of, um, of, of a support system, right? So I, I would probably look to have hired an additional help, uh, just someone that uh, the new leadership could allocate more tasks to. Because uh, I, think, I think what wound up um, sinking the ship was things just got too busy. And uh, you know, leadership fell behind and, and then, you know, they got to a level where they just couldn't kind of, they were treading water. They couldn't stay, stay in front of, you know, uh, upcoming innovations and, and, and it just, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. So it, it took, you know, like you're saying, it worked well for three to four months and you started to slowly see, I guess the future, you started to slowly see that this company was heading in a direction that was not going to be good. 
how did you step back in? Because I, I imagine that you were still in the MBA program, you know, because these last, you know, more than just three or four months. Uh, how did you, I guess, step your foot back in, into the into the business? Um, well, very, very simply. So I, I was gauging revenue. And uh, um, when I took the business back over, revenue, I think, was one-fifth what it was when I handed the business over. And I said, what the hell is going on? And I kind of just stepped back in there and like I said, shuffled things up. Um, let, let go old leadership, hired in uh, new individuals. Uh, this time when I hired in, uh, so luckily um, old leadership hadn't vested yet. Um, when I got the, the new individuals involved in the company, uh, this time I made sure not to give out equity. Uh, instead, I did the equivalent of a of a commission based structure, you know, that was based on the uh, profit that was coming into the company. Um, and again, still at this point, all, all the any income coming in from this, from my perspective, was just, you know, it was just icing on the cake. I, I had already extracted the value that I needed to extract from this business, and at this point, I, I was just keeping the thing afloat because it just felt like a shame to let it die. But this wasn't my be-all, end-all business by any means. Um, it was just an opportunity, you know, to continue to to have this kind of income rolling in, which was which was nice. Um, so uh, when I stepped back in, um, I was very kind of clear with with what it was uh, that I wanted to to have happen, um, and I was very clear with what my expectations were for the the new individuals that I was bringing in, uh, which was basically, you know, you run this thing, and I'll bring you guys ideas and. And then execute on them, and that that, that kind of works. Yeah, you're, you, it sounds like I mean I'm sure that it's not as rosy as as you're describing it, but uh, for me it sounds like the ultimate entrepreneur dream where you come up with ideas and other people execute it, and you just keep on coming up with ideas, and other people do kind of the I guess more of the dirty work, the stuff that that's really uh, can kind of grind people down. So it's it's funny the way that you describe because I think a lot of people can imagine that that'd be the perfect setup for for them if they wanted to start a company. Um, so you mentioned that that you. You, instead of giving out equity like you did the first time, you learn uh, from, I guess, that mistake or you learned that that didn't work out as well. You focus instead on compensating uh, the new hires through commission. So talk to us about, I guess, the pros and cons of that. Would you ever give equity again? Like when does it work? When does equity work? When does commission work? I mean, e- equity is kind of like marriage, right? You give equity to the people that you want to be married to. Um, and the problem with equity, especially equity, it's vesting is a lot of times once it's vested, uh, the this top talent that you brought in with equity will probably want to leave. Now that doesn't apply so much to what my experience was in the fall, but you can imagine how um, had that experience worked out a little bit differently than it had had I not been able to shuffle things up before for the cliff on that vesting, uh, I would have been stuck carrying, or the company would have been stuck carrying baggage um, for someone that wasn't contributing any value to the company. And I didn't ever want to find myself in that position where we were carrying baggage like that. Um, you know, if, if, so what, what, um, what the, you know, so the trade-off here, right, is, well, how do you not do that? Right. So I think, um, so there's a, uh, so McKinsey, the consulting firm, uh, was founded by Mr. McKinsey and, and he had this vision, uh, when he retired, cause he was the sole owner of, of that consulting firm. When he retired, he said, um, he, he, I think he renounced all, I might be totally butchering the story, but he renounced 
uh, all of his equity and, and set it up in some some similar profit sharing agreement uh, because the idea was he wanted to maintain the value within the company because he wanted to build an institution. Uh, my company was not built to be an institution by any means, uh, but I wanted to make sure that I was able to, to provide maximum compensation to the people that were actively involved in the company um, while at the same time maintaining my maximum ability to extract value from the company. Um, and that's what I, that this is the way that I was able to, to do that, right? It's through this idea of profit sharing or commission or how, whatever, whatever name you want to call it by. Um, and as long as, you know, you're very upfront with all the people involved that this is what it is, I, I think it's a very good position to put all the parties involved, uh, in, uh, and that's because you're able to very quickly get someone earning a, a lot of money, cash money, right? Right from the beginning of the start. Um, and whereas if you know, you're investing someone in with equity, I mean, of course, all agreements are different, but you might not uh, be sharing profit with them in, in such a generous way, certainly not in the beginning. Mm. So when you brought in these new employees, were they, and the, you said they're commission-based, a lot of times you hear that for salespeople, but were you bringing in more than just salespeople? And if so, how did you structure the payouts on, on how they were going to get paid uh, through commissions? No, so a generalist. Um, so this is the, the way that, um, that this was put together. Uh, we would have, there'd be a, a monthly revenue number and then we'd, you know, we basically calculate profit off of that and then commissions or profit share would be based on that number. And, and what you would, the, the amount that was paid out to each individual was, was based on, on that number. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, was able, I don't know, I think it kept everybody happy. Yeah. So is this the way that the company is structured still today? Absolutely not. Um, so the way that things are today, um, so what Tardisk is, is kind of the evolution of, of kind of all these learnings that I had with all these kind of smaller companies that I, that I'd done. Um, the way Tardisk is structured today, I have, uh, I have kind of the equivalent of a, of a C level suite. That's probably, um, not the way to describe this, but I, I have the equivalent of managers that I rely on. And then we have uh, another level underneath, um, that makes sure that, that I mean, that's where all the magic happens, right? Um, there, all the people at that that second tier level are the ones that kind of are able to uh, allow us to function uh, as as we function and to kind of de- develop and deliver the products that we're able to deliver. Um, but the way that I try and disseminate uh, information is again through this the equivalent of this kind of pyramid structure where there's myself, uh, I guess, at the top. Uh, I have three underneath me, although it's probably more like I'm in line with those three underneath me. Uh, and then we have all of the awesome people that are helping us build what 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 it is that Tardisk is right now. Mm, very cool. So, how do you even set up a company like this? Because it sounds much more organized than than you had it originally. Uh, a very clear hierarchy, very clear almost chain of command commands on how everything is uh, delegated. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that this wasn't just something that you laid out from the start and all of a sudden hired all these people and placed them all in together. How do you even begin to build a company like this? Okay, so let me back up a little bit because there's different ways uh, to build a structured company. And uh, I might be making this sound much much prettier than it is because it's probably a little more messy <laughs> on the inside. Shh, don't tell anyone. Um, no one's listening, don't worry. This, so, <laughs> uh, so the way that um, Tardisk, so Tardisk was, was constructed... Um, to be a lifestyle business. So I, I by design, I, I specifically chose not to raise money on this company uh, because that's not what I wanted to do, right? I wanted to kind of 
I had this vision in the back of my mind that I'd be able to build this self-sustaining business um, that would be able, you know, I call it the machine that oils itself, uh, that I'd be able, that we'd be able to make these amazing products um, and I'd be able to kind of leverage this to continue to, to build cool things, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's really what I like to do. I like to build things. Um, so when I built Tardisk, um, again, trying not to take any external funding, uh, the way that I did this uh, was through a lot of organic growth. Um, so the, the, the very first thing that you could point to in Tardisk's history that's kind of a milestone uh, is we ran a Kickstart campaign. And uh, it was tremendously successful, um, and we did really well. And that was enough to kind of, uh, you know, hire, build out kind of this hardware platform that we sell, which is the Tardisk hardware platform. Um, get some money in the bank, prove that you know this isn't just this uh, crackpot idea that, the, that that what we're selling is is meeting a demand that people actually have that these chips work. Um, and then with the money that we earned from the campaign. Uh, I then use that to develop out the whole software suite that lives on top of the hardware that we sell. And that's that's the magic of, of what makes TARDIS this hybrid drive, right? Uh, instead of being this external drive, you stick this thing in and, and all of a sudden it actually expands the size of your Macintosh HD. So to put that into Windows terms, your C drive gets bigger, right? You don't get a D drive, your C drive gets bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's... Um, that's pretty cool. So the it was kind of in the early days, the way that this was structured was, uh, you know, myself, uh, a couple of other people, and a whole bunch of, of poorly paid interns. Um, to to say it, you know, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, those guys are and they're awesome, uh, but they, you know, that that's the way we were able to build the company. And then through having interns uh, that were only with us for you know three months at a time, four months at a time. Uh, every time that a class of interns would leave, it would almost provide uh, time for a reboot. So every time that interns left, and then I kind of brought in, I'll call them a class of interns, but that might not be the best way to describe it. But every time I brought in this new kind of crop or class or whatever you want to call of interns, I, I got to kind of step back and say, okay, well, what worked last time? What needs to work this time? If I'm going to bring in this many people, I can't be dealing with you know 10 people uh, with, with FaceTime every day, uh, we need some, some form of, uh, you know, delegation structure. Mm. And, and by doing it that way, it, it, we were able to, uh, you know, organically put, uh, structures in place that, that allowed us to kind of scale. Right. And again, this was with the intent of not raising external money. Now, had I gone the route of, of kind of raising from investors, I have a lot more flexibility here to kind of put together more formal plans of how I want to you know, structure the company and, and who to hire when. And I could probably bring the whole team very quickly and ramp up to speed much, much more quickly than, uh, than, than it took us to do. Cause it really took us uh, a year uh, to get to the point where we are now. So take, keeping that, keeping that in mind, um, uh, you know, this, this is the way that I built it, you know, taking an investment, you give up control. I wanted to maintain that control. And, uh, <laughs> through interns and through a lot of awesome, uh, people that I've been privileged enough to work with, we've been able to get this far. 
Mm, very cool. So it sounds like the structure that was built out came out of necessity. You kind of have a, a team of people working on this, interns uh, at, that, at, that, at that stage, and you realize that there needs to be some organization to all of this, and that's how you essentially built the team out organically. Um, so you, you mentioned a couple of times now that, that you, you know, you've hired generalists, you're a generalist yourself, um, but when you build a company like this, again, in the technology space and the hardware space specifically, and of course, uh, you mentioned the software that's built on top of all this, it, it's you know requires deep knowledge of the technology. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs they look at industries that they want to get into, but shy away from it because they don't have that deep knowledge. They might be interested in it, kind of you know just conceptually or like the idea of being an industry like, uh, for example, like yours. But they just don't have the expertise. They don't even know what they don't know. They don't even know what people you know people that they might be hiring if they're even knowledgeable about it because they don't know what if they're kind of telling the truth or not, I guess. How do you control for all that? How do you manage all of that when you are a generalist and you're working in an industry that has such kind of, you know, a requirement for deep, deep knowledge of the technology? This might not be the answer that you want to hear, but it's, uh, if you don't, um, if, if you don't have a solid grasp of, of what it is, especially at the early stage, of, of what it is that you're trying to build, of, of the technical requirements that, that you're going to need to get you uh, to the level uh, of a product that you can sell for real dollars, then you shouldn't be the one leading that company. And I, that's, that might sound like very harsh and, and like a cold truth, but I, I truly believe that I, I would not, that the guys who work for me would not respect what it is I had to say if I didn't have value things, valuable things to contribute. So this isn't like a corporate job where you're a professional manager, I mean, you're, you know, I guess you're an entrepreneur, right? So you're, you're wearing all hats at once. When something breaks, uh, you know, it's, it's my responsibility to fix it. And I can augment that responsibility uh, by working with you know, extremely smart people and, and collectively collaborating to get a solution in place. Uh, but if those people aren't available, it's on me to figure out what the hell's going on. Um, sorry, I'm, I don't know if that's cursing or not. That's I guess okay. it's a podcast, right? Yeah. It's all private. You're all good. <laughs> um, so what I, you know, what I would caution anybody going into an industry that they're getting involved in, what, what, what I would caution them about is, you know, you need to, to read up and, and become very knowledgeable very quickly about what it is that you're trying to build. And the way that you do that is by having conversations with people that are most likely smarter than you. Uh, most people that I meet are, are way smarter than I am. Um, but it's, it's very important that you can, can learn from these smart people around you and you know what it is you're getting yourself involved in. Mm. All right. That's my rant. No, no, that, that makes sense. I think, I mean, I think that that's, you saying, you said that it's not the answer that people want to hear, but I think it, it is the right answer, which is that even if you're a generalist, even if you don't know much about it, you have to surround yourself with experts. And I, I think as long as you immerse yourself in that, in that, uh, I guess, in that community and you ask a lot of questions, it, it's very hard not to become an expert, at least, you know, much, much more than you were when you first started out. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you initially started started Tardisk as a lifestyle business. And even before that, it was even a smaller goal. It's not a smaller goal, but even, uh, I guess, not as, as big of a goal because you just wanted money to go to school. And then eventually it became successful and then you realized that this could just be generating income for you without you having to, you know, be uh, involved in it, I guess, as heavily as, or you know, without having to get a day job or having to be involved in it as heavily as, you know, a much 
larger company. But one thing that's different about your, I guess, vision of a lifestyle business than the ones that I've seen is that you wanted to build out a decent sized team. You wanted to build out a hierarchy. And did you ever, did ever kind of, um, did you ever consider building a company or maybe downsizing a company so that it had lower overhead that maybe it was only you and another person or maybe two other people involved? So you can do that. Um, you just, when you downsize to a level like that, you're, you're putting a, a constrained amount of time, in my opinion, that company will, will continue to be viable for. Mm. Right? So it's, it's extremely important to continue to roll out new products. It's extremely important to make sure that you are offering premium content that's going to attract uh, individuals to come to your, your website to even buy the thing. It's, you know, it's super important that you understand uh, what the competition is doing and, and learn from that because either they're doing things right or they're doing things wrong. But either way, you should know what it is that they're doing, and you should be better than that. Um, so, yeah, we we could, you know, I could bring the the team to smaller in size. Uh, doing that would probably put more money in in my pocket, um, but I don't think that that would be as interesting. And frankly, I don't think it'd be as much fun. And then you also mentioned that it, the longevity of a business like that is also shorter. Absolutely, I, but this is the space that we're in, right? I mean, if you're doing mm-hmm. things that are you know, more commodities based. Well, even then, I think a lot of what I said still applies. But specifically with consumer electronics, I mean, these things are these things are moving pretty damn quick. Uh, just think back, you know, a couple of years ago, how slow your smartphone was compared to what, what you have now. So that's that's the space that we're operating in. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Cool. So then I want to talk a little bit about the, the growth and the marketing that went behind building a business like this. And you mentioned earlier that one of the key milestones to kick off the success for you guys was the Kickstarter campaign. Um, so the one that you're talking about, I think, is the one for the, the TARDISC uh, for the MacBook, because you also had another one earlier that was not as successful. Uh, but this one had to go $32,500 ended up breaking through that goal and raising $128,000 from 977 backers. Um, so when you initially set out this goal, how did you, or when you initially put together this campaign, what did you want that $32,000 for? So I, I do need to say, um, so before we launched the campaign, and this was the first campaign we launched, so that's actually, that's a side note. We'll, we'll touch back around on that, why you saw two campaigns. Um, when we... When we were first launching the campaign, I, I reached out to some people that were friends of friends that worked at Kickstarter, and I asked them for advice because that's kind of my mantra, right? Talk to people that are smarter than you and learn from them. And uh, some of the advice that I was given, which I think was very valuable, was Kickstarter campaigns never fail uh, because the funding goal is too low. <laughs> so people like to contribute dollars to to winners, right? To things that they know are going to kind of pay off so they could they could say that yeah I stood behind them when they were early um, so the the original uh, dollar amount that we had applied um, that we had put up on Kickstarter I think was largely trivial now let's talk a little bit about what Kickstarter has evolved into uh, at least at the time that we launched it's probably further so now uh, so when Kickstarter was was first kind of launched uh, and this was you know a number of years ago now I don't even know how many 10 years ago maybe maybe um, I, it was truly a product development platform where you could come there with an idea uh, and, and you could get some dollars and cents in your pocket to go out and try that idea. Now, what happened was you, you got a lot of people, probably very similar to the entrepreneurs uh, that you were talking to me about earlier in, in the, the podcast, where um, people had these grand visions for these 
products that they wanted to build with no technical idea of how to build them. Mm-hmm. So what happened was they you had a lot of failed campaigns. So these were uh, campaigns that raised a tremendous amount of money that weren't ever able to deliver on a product. So what Kickstarter then evolved to was this idea of you needed to kind of show this functional prototype. And and I think that was a step in the right direction. But by the time that we had launched, and this was in 2014, 2000, no, 2015, um, uh, by the time that we had gotten our Kickstarter campaign up there, I feel like the culture on Kickstarter had evolved to such a level that people expected this finished, polished product ready to be shipped out the door two weeks after the campaign ended. Well, let me just tell you, from from as a hardware manufacturer, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. I mean, there's tooling costs that, that you need to have in place. There's engineering costs. You need to have all this cash kind of lined up and ready to go out the door uh, for, you know, materials and, and uh, you know, all these kind of like unforeseen things that, that you're, you're just starting to think about. And it's so important that, again, you are delivering these kind of like extremely short timelines um, that it, it's just not, it's not realistic. So by, by the time that our Kickstarter campaign had launched, I had learned all this. And I realized that we were going to have to have this thing pretty damn close to, uh, you know, to going out the door by the time the campaign launched. That you know that that uh, that initial funding goal was is completely arbitrary. It just sounded like a weird number that somebody would question. And if needed, I could probably put some logic to it. I think there might even be an explanation for the number is in there. Yeah. So you're even saying that you wanted to. I think what you're saying earlier about Kickstarter campaigns never fail because if funding goal is too low, what you're getting at is that the lower the better, so that you can reach that goal. Well, within reason, right? You want to keep this thing realistic. You want to keep up the, you know, the dream of what Kickstarter is, right? Because the Mm -hmm. people that are backing these Kickstarter campaigns want to. I mean, they they true fundamentally believe that they, um, that they are contributing to the success of this product, and they are. Uh, but uh, by the time that the product is ready to go up on Kickstarter, especially all the products you see that claim that they're going to ship eight weeks after the campaign ends, those products have been engineered months before that campaign went up. Mm. And that funding goal that they have up there, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I might be making this up, but I, in my humblest opinion, uh, those goals that they put up are, are truly arbitrary. And they're probably just for pre-orders at that point, not so much for uh, funding the development of a product. Probably for the material costs at that mm-hmm. point. Gotcha. Makes sense. Cool. So after this uh, campaign had ended, $128,000, did you expect to raise that kind of money? You know, Even though, like you were saying, the goal is relatively arbitra- arbitrary, did you... What, what did you, I guess, was the $128,000 what you kind of was hoping for, more or less than, than what you were hoping for? Yeah, so I, I think that our, our realistic target was probably about 100 k So we came in we came in over that, and then as soon as the campaign ends, um, and of course there's tools now that make it much easier, but then you can leverage some of these pre-order uh, tools to help you collect other pre-orders. Then we had a whole bunch of other pre-orders come in, which was great. Um, and that kind of added to that number. So by the time we actually started shipping product, we had a decent amount of cash in the bank to kind of cover you know, the, the cost of our chips and kind of getting everything uh, in a position where we could mail the thing out. And we had a little bit of money left over uh, to be able to pay the people that were stuffing the envelopes to send the thing out. Very cool. So this uh, this campaign, was it organically successful or did you guys do a lot of promotion? Did you guys do a lot of preparation beforehand? What was the, the, the plan to, for marketing a Kickstarter campaign? God, I wish we had done more um, PR. I, I was I was naive when we went into this about um, where how Kickstarter campaigns 
this work. And especially today, because I think it's gotten, I think it's evolved even more to the point where you need to do external PR. So Kickstarter internally has this interesting metric uh, where they where they show you um, where your funding sources are coming from. And uh, they show you, or at least they used to show you, uh, um, how much of your funding came internally versus how much come, came externally. And that's internal to the Kickstarter website versus external to the Kickstarter website. And uh, what we were, what, so we didn't do too much external um, fund, excuse me, external advertising. Um, and what we were able to uh, achieve in our Kickstarter, which is miraculous given the amount of money we raised, I think we had close to 80% um, of our backers coming from the Kickstarter platform alone, mm. which is almost unheard of, right? Because a lot of times you're driving the traffic externally. So had we uh, been more knowledgeable and had I been less naive about what's required um, to market one of these things externally, I think the campaign you know, could have easily... You know, done better by, I mean, I don't know, perhaps even an order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're seeing there was, you know, again, the majority, 80% of that came from the Kickstarter platform itself. Uh, and there was enough to get us where we are today. So it's, it was successful in that respect. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say inside the Kickstarter campaign versus outside, you mean traffic that's just clicking through to like a, a campaign a f- campaign landing page versus people browsing around Kickstarter and finding your campaign organically. So there must have been something then that, that you guys definitely nailed with the campaign, whether it be the title of the campaign or the, the, the campaign page itself. And what do you think uh, led to the success of getting so many people attracted to your campaign organically from within the Kickstarter? platform so of course tardis serves this awesome little niche need right we offer a product that solves a real problem um okay so there's that uh and then on the kickstarter campaign itself uh you know don't don't be so foolish as to think that the the video that you put together um won't directly correlate to the amount of money that you raise like you need a cute video to go along with the product that you're selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, you know, we had a really cute uh, little video that kind of talked about storage space and, and how what we were doing was different. And, you know, we made sure to intertwine in those, those witty jokes and the puns and, you know, just enough to kind of keep people watching. Uh, another metric that, that Kickstarter provides uh, to the people running campaigns is how long do people generally engage with your video for? Right? Do people watch the first five seconds? Do they uh, click off after you know 30 seconds? Do they watch the whole thing to completion? Uh, we, we had a great, you know, a very large number uh, of videos, or excuse me, a very large percentage of our videos were watched to completion. And that's because of the way that we structured it. So by design, uh, we did what any commercial does. So in the first five seconds, we tried to catch you with a hook. Uh, and then by the end of the first 30 seconds, we've completely explained to you about what this thing is and why you should be excited about it, just the way that uh, a commercial on TV would do. And that would be that could be its own standalone little thing. And then I think the entire video was maybe three minutes long. And then for the rest of the video, we kind of you know intertwined in, touching on things that we spoke about in the first five seconds, the first 30 seconds, and peppering in more details and, and jokes and just kind of things to engage with the audience and make them understand that we're real people and that, you know, we like to have a good time. 
Uh, so you should back us. Uh, so that sounds like a really um, great I guess, anatomy of a successful Kickstarter campaign. Five seconds, hook them in. Uh, within 30 seconds, the, the, uh, the I guess, uh, viewers should know what the problem that the product is solving, what is the product itself. Did you create this, product, this uh, video in-house or did you hire out for it? Absolutely. Uh, so as the scrappy entrepreneur that I am, everything that we did, we did in-house. Uh, again, generalist, right? So uh, we edited it in, you know, iMovie. The, uh, you know, the, all the filming was shot in a combination of, uh, you know, we had this awesome rock star intern that helped us shoot the video, and then uh, you know, we did all again editing in house. Um, it was, yeah, it came together very well. Cool. So, you know, speaking of um, other ways to promote the the campaign that you wish you focused more on, you mentioned PR, and I think you listed this as one of the keys to your success today outside of Kickstarter, which is a targeted PR campaign or targeted PR campaigns, uh, rich with free product samples. So tell us a little bit more about this. What is, uh, what do you mean by a targeted PR campaign? How is it different than, I guess, a typical PR campaign? So uh, if we just rewind to this, that Kickstarter campaign that we ran, that campaign could have been so much more successful if we had demo units that we could have sent out. Because when you're trying to raise awareness for a Kickstarter campaign, nobody cares. You know, it's it's big news to you, but you know, so many of these campaigns come out and they fail, and you know, so many times uh, people promise products they just have no clue of how, you know what it's going to take to actually deliver on those products. Um, so. If we had one the budget and two the actual you know, access to um, TARDIS products that we could have sent out uh, to to reviewers to reporters, that would have made it so much more successful. So fast forward uh, a year, uh, we wound up um, engaging with, uh, with this really awesome firm, Big Fish PR, and they stepped in and uh, I, they, I mean, they really they recognized the value that we had probably even before we recognized the value that we had. Um, and we were able to set up, uh, a campaign where we targeted uh, a specific set of journalists, uh, with basically samples just saying, Hey guys, try this out, see how awesome it is and let the product speak for itself. Uh, and then we did a, uh, targeted coordinated launch date, uh, for when we were rolling out, um, the TARDIS pair software package. Uh, and that was just spectacular. I remember getting a, uh, a call from, from Dave, who's, who runs Big Fish PR. And uh, he's like, I'm, I'm about to make it rain on your website. I'm like, what? what? Make it rain? What does that mean? And um, so, of course, we were running on, on the Shopify platform. And uh, the minute we had this counter on the website counting down to when the website was going to go live, and the minute it went live, I mean, the traffic just started flowing. And uh, uh, you know, we were watching that those kind of revenue numbers go up, uh, like a, like the you know numbers flipping on one of those old style <laughs> clocks. Uh, nice. It was really awesome. Yeah. So when you say this targeted PR campaign, you're also just you're also talking about the timing of all of it, right? Rather than kind of dripping in and out slowly over time, you focus all the PR efforts around one launch day, so that all of the PR hit you know the public, I guess, all at one time. Is that what you mean as well? Absolutely. There's nothing that we do that's not coordinated with other things that we're doing. So everything that you know, every everything that we touch, uh, you know, you need to be cognizant of, of what it of what that thing means to all the other things that it touches. Mm. 
God, was that too nimbly? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think uh, it's important that that you're that. Well, I think it's great that you're able to do that. It's kind of coordinate everything together. Um, but today, look, when you do do PR, is it is it as targeted in terms of around a specific date, or how is it different now that you've you have launched? So if we look at so every time that a new product is launched, right? So uh, Tardis is great because it invented a new product category. Um, and that, that garnered a whole bunch of press. But every time that we launch something new, uh, we try and make sure that we are contacting people and letting them all know that this is happening on this particular day. And you should look to have all of your articles you know, sequestered until that day. And that's... I think, you know, I, I didn't believe that it was a good PR strategy until I experienced it myself firsthand. Uh, but I think that's that's the best way to do these things. Yeah. Um, now, these camp- PR campaigns only work, again, you know, when you're first launching something. So what we've done since then to garner PR has been totally different. Mm. So yeah, when you do run these uh, these PR campaigns and you are asking them to, like you're saying, sequester these articles until a specific date, is that usually, I guess, a demand that that's easy to make, or like how do you, you know, if you're just a new brand that doesn't have a product yet and you're trying to work with these PR outlets, you might just try to get anything that they can they'll they'll bite onto. Uh, but did you find that it was easy to get people to PR outlets to agree not to release something until a specific for a PR firm, it's easy for them to do because mm-hmm. the uh, the individuals uh, don't want to cut off their supply to free demos, <laughs> mm-hmm. or at least that's my interpretation of it. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Or they, I mean, there's that, and there's also the fact that they have good good relationships with the, the PR firms have good relationships with the reporters. If we were doing this on our own, um, I I think we'd have a very difficult time. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. I think that that's probably one of the best value or one of the best, um, I guess, contributions of a, of a PR agency is that, that kind of uh, power, I guess, in the negotiations when it comes to to how the, the PR is done. So another another method that you you uh, you uh, I guess told us about in the pre-interviews on how you are able to market the business is through laser-focused YouTube advertising. So tell us a little more about this. What is the strategy behind uh, the YouTube advertising? So YouTube allows you to do advertising at the video level. So um, for us, and I'm, I'm going to drill this in one more time in case your audience doesn't know what we do, we sell a product that solves a very simple problem. Your MacBook runs out of storage space. You get this little annoying thing that says your startup disk is almost full. Uh, and we sell a, a product that, that solves that problem, right? You stick our little chip inside your computer and it adds storage space. There are a tremendous number of videos out there on the net that um, talk about this this problem, right? You have all these people that run out of storage space on their Macs, and um, people put up tutorials and how-tos on how to fix that problem, right? And so what we do is we target those videos, and we say, hey, you know, you're looking at this. Um, We sell a solution. It's relatively cheap for 150 bucks we could probably double your storage uh just click this link stick thing in and and you're good to go um and so that that's been tremendously successful for us uh understanding you know where it is that our audience is looking for the answers for how to solve these problems that they're running into um and then serving ads on those in those places right so you have the equivalent of you know forums right so 
You have all these Mac-based forms, and every time a question pops up on how do you, you know, on my MacBook, my startup disk is almost full on my MacBook, what do I do? Help. Uh, you better believe it that we have one of our support guys um, following up with a forum response saying, well, there's this option, but you could also buy a TAR disk, and that'll solve your problem probably way quicker and way easier. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's been very valuable to us. And, and that's good because we're not paying per click on that, right? Once you post that form thing up, uh, it's up there for a while. Yeah, I, yeah, I really love this approach that you, the way you describe it is so, so uh, clear too, which is that you find where people are already talking about, where people are already kind of um, collecting around a particular problem that your product solves and then put your product in front of them uh, at, that, at that moment. So whether it be tutorials on YouTube or people asking questions in forums, you want to be present. And I guess when it comes to the forums, you, you can't be as advertising or salesy, I guess, as you would on YouTube uh, when you're buying an ad. Uh, you probably have to contribute first, which is why you suggested delivering the value, giving them an option, and then also giving them a, an easier option by just buying your product. So when it comes to you, the YouTube advertising, I, I, you know, I've never heard anyone doing it this way before, but it makes a lot of sense where you look for videos that, that talk about the problem that your product solves. And when you say that you're able to target it specifically, I, have, I don't have any experience at all with YouTube advertising, but are you able to say, this is the video that I want or like how, how laser focused can you get this targeting? Yeah. yeah, you could serve on a specific video. Wow, that's very cool. So, are you able to? How do you manage all that? Like, how do you find all these videos, and how do you manage which camp, which, uh, which uh, I guess videos you're going to to be serving on? Well, it's it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful question because the, the answer is so simple. We just type in <laughs> startup disco was full on MacBook. Nice. How do I fix that? Right? Or I mean, it's equivalent for whatever business it is that, that you're involved in, right? If you're, you're you know, selling diapers that help with diaper rash, you know, search in YouTube for my baby has diaper rash, right? What do I do? And then serve the videos. there. Um, I think it's very straightforward. It takes a little bit of legwork and you could argue how scalable it ultimately is. But for us, at least in the short term, it's been great. And how expensive can this get compared to other forms of advertising, like on Facebook ads or, or through AdWords? Uh, so we definitely have a high click-through rate it's uh, not necessarily always high conversion rates, uh, so that can be uh, a little challenging, right, to walk that line. So the net profitable advertising we do is on YouTube. Uh, we do advertising all over the web. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that question. Yeah, no worries. I think that that makes sense, though. That that with you with videos, in general videos just tend to be, I think, more expensive when you're when you're buying. But if you're able to get as targeted as you're talking about, I think uh, it, it can you know pay off um, even at that that more expensive kind of price point. Uh, so. You know, thanks so much. So this this is, uh, you know, I think you gave a lot of kind of great advice on how to get started, how to, I think this YouTube stuff is going to be really interesting too for a lot of people that haven't considered uh, going on, on YouTube and, and buying ads that way. Um, now, for, for you and your brand, like where do you see the company going? Like where do you want the company to be in the next year? Yeah, so we are continuing to, to grow in the stuff which is awesome. We're going to continue to roll. We have a couple of very interesting products uh, up our sleeves that we're going to be rolling out uh, right around the time of New Year. Hopefully it's CES. Uh, it will be a lot of fun. Um, the whole idea of what it is that we offer right now is in this uh, Mac space that, that's expanding a little bit. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. Um, 
But we right now are, are positioning ourselves to be the authority on all things storage space Mac. So in addition to our TARDIS.com website, which is a Shopify-based store, uh, we have a sister website, which is MacAuthority.org. And this is just a, it's essentially a, a content creating theme that attracts clicks. Um, so that's been been great. So we're going to continue to build up that space. Um, very cool. I think that's an amazing strategy. Great way to kind of solidify your brand and and you provide a lot of value and become an expert in this space without just you know shoving your product down people's throats. I think that's a, a great way to, to, to put yourself out there. So you know, again, thanks so much for your time, Pierre. So tardisk.com is the website. MacAuthority.org, again, is the, the blog, the content side of, of the business. Anywhere else you recommend a listeners check out they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Yeah, uh, check out sparksales.io. Uh, it's a uh, sales platform version of our website. So definitely worth taking a look at. Very cool. Thanks again so much for your time, Pierce. Thanks so much, Felix. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.